I'm your host, Amber Hollingsworth. I'm an addiction specialist, and I've been helping people beat addiction for more than 20 years now. This podcast is for people who want to know how to get through to an addicted loved one, for people who are tired of being told that they just need to stand back and wait for their loved one to decide to do something about it. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how to outsmart addiction and put this whole mess behind you for good. It might seem like living as a functional alcoholic is like having the best of both worlds. You can drink, you can have fun, you can party, and you can have everything else in your life all at the same time. But that's not exactly the whole truth to the story. We're going to dive a lot deeper into that subject today about what is the truth about living as a functional alcoholic. In fact, What's the difference between a functional addict alcoholic and a non-functional addict and alcoholic? What does it mean for the person and what does it mean for their family members and their loved ones? We have special guests with us here today, family recovery specialist, Campbell Manning. Campbell has all the professional and personal experience to speak on this topic. Campbell, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad you're here. What do you, let's get right into it. What do you think, how would you describe what a functional addict, functional alcoholic is? So technically what I think is that the, that they're flip-flop because a functional alcoholic, in my opinion, is someone who needs to use, needs to drink to function as okay. in I've got to have a couple of beers in the morning. I can get to work. I get maybe another cocktail at lunch, sneak a mini bottle in around three o'clock, get home and keep drinking. I need to keep that going. So I don't go into withdrawal. Versus a non-functioning would be, I just drink a lot or use a lot, but I can still function. So to me, it's like what you said yesterday. It's really the difference between stage three and stage four addiction. So it's still, in your mind, is still an alcoholic, but they're basically, it's somebody who's still able to go to work, make money, go to school if it's school. They're still able to do not everything in their life, but they're juggling some of their balls effectively. Definitely. They're going to get enough done that's going to keep them in denial because we have time, which is, I don't know why my wife is bitching. Like I have a good job. We have a nice house. We have three cars. I don't know why she's bitching because he doesn't see that he's preoccupied with drinking to the point that he doesn't want to go to restaurants that don't have alcohol or doesn't want to go to events that don't have them, or he doesn't participate at his children's birthday parties because he's at Lowe's picking up lumber and a six pack. I'm really glad you said that because it's such an important thing. It does, being a functional addict or alcoholic, does keep a person in denial because they feel like, I can't possibly be an alcoholic, can't possibly be an addict. Like, I go to work, I'm making money, I pay my bills, I'm passing my classes, and it keeps them stuck in denial. But that's because they haven't dropped that one ball yet. But usually, if you're to this level that you would fall into this category, you are dropping some balls. And the first ones you're dropping are usually at home and in relationships. And so what happens is it's the people closest to you, the ones that live with you, that are going to see it first. Yeah. And I also would add that they're dropping balls of things that they would, without drinking, choose to do. Build a bunk bed or write a book or take the Christmas tree down, but now I'm drinking. So I'm not going to do those things, but those things usually matter to them. So they get away with them. Then it goes to the relationship. Like I thought you were going to take the tree down. Oh yeah. I'll do it tonight. And another night. Cause I'm just going to drink again tonight. So that you're right. So it's maybe you're still going to work. Maybe you're still going to class, but are you really being the best 
brother, wife, sister, are you bringing your A game to your relationships? And then that creates a problem because the first, that's the first consequences that start happening is like the people closest to you get mad at you. And then that makes you think, I don't have an addiction problem. I don't have a drug or alcohol problem. I have a a spouse problem, problem, a spouse problem, you know, a teacher problem, a boss problem, because it seems like they're always mad at you, which will feel to you like, why are they so critical? Why are they never happy with anything I do? Why are they always want more from me? And you don't see that person is upset with you and that relationship is damaged because you're dropping the ball in the context of that relationship. But because you haven't dropped the other ones yet, (laughs) you feel like it's them and not you. And that keeps you stuck. Yeah. Feeds that victim role, which, or the gaslighting, because everybody else in the world is happy with me. I don't know why you're squawking at me, honey. And so then they gaslight you back at, which just for the spouse or partner, so frustrating. And then they get caught in that cycle of cat and mouse and who's the villain and who's the good guy. And then that trap just digs the hole deeper, obviously. (laughs) It also lets you argue about those things like the Christmas tree versus the alcohol. I find that even for family members, it goes on for a long time, for years before they even realize what the problem really is. Because they may think it's this, it's that, it's this temporary problem at work, it's their childhood trauma, it's this, whatever. They're just having a hard time adjusting. But it it takes a while for people to connect the dots to it's actually coming from the substance. And one of the reasons why it's so hard to connect that dot is because a lot of times it's an indirect connection. If you get intoxicated on something and you do something stupid, you connect that dot. You realize there's a, you realize that alcohol made you act like a jerk. You realize that you spent your whole paycheck on cocaine or whatever. Like it's clear what you've a lot of times miss when you're in this functioning category is like this, the next day stuff that you are half ass at work, that you're grumpy to your kids and on them all the time and that you're irritable. And you probably, you might not connect that to the addiction because it's, it's an aftermath. It's a peripheral effect that you don't see because your addiction doesn't want you to see it. Right. And a lot of times people don't even know that's why they're so irritable. That's why they're so anxious. That's why everything gets under their skin. It's why they don't have as much resilience. They think the substance is helping, but the substance is actually making your resiliency, your ability to think clear less and less. And so these are the reasons why it's so hard to get people to see the issue. And the functional part is the problematic part. It is the problematic part. Like we see it constantly. And even we hear from them. I don't know why I'm here. Like I have a great job and my wife is just crazy. And then the right. other one of us meets with the wife. We're like, oh, that's the greatest wife ever. She's not crazy at all. He's a severe alcoholic. She's probably crazy a little bit, but let's well, just say there's a reason. There's a very <laughs> solid reason she's a little bit crazy. There's a reason, right. And I guess that kind of connects me, Campbell, to the method that we use, the invisible intervention method that we use, which is to turn that scenario upside down, which is to make the family member not the bad guy anymore. Step number one. But also the other piece of that formula is to allow the functionality to show itself for real. Because what happens is is the family members are on your butt, they're criticizing you, they're nagging you, but they're making sure your bills get paid and they're making sure you showed up to your kid's ball game and they're making sure you turned in your final paper. They're driving you to the ball game so that you can be there. And then they're like, why can't they say it's a problem? (laughs) Because as the family member, you're creating this picture 
that where it's making them think I'm functioning fine. Amber, I think it's harder for spouses or partners because, especially if there are children involved, because they can't really allow that unmanageability as easily as a parent of a kid of a 20-year-old. Because then what about the children? And John won't have his dad at the ball game or John will see that dad's passed out at the table versus dad's sick and dad's dude, go upstairs and get in bed and I'm going to cover your ass. And so it, that delays it even further, I think, for the spouses and parent uh, partners. And, and I think that's whether there's children involved in general, whether it's one of the, the partners who has the substance problem and then the, the other partner feels like they have to protect the kids, which sometimes means enabling the spouse. But also if it's your, if it's your kid that has a kid, that's right. The Anytime there's kids involved, this becomes infinitely more complicated about what balls do you let drop and which ones do you don't. I actually had oh. this question on the on our meetup yesterday for the membership. And this woman was like, we're talking about unmanageability. And she said, yeah, but I feel like if I do that, then my kids will suffer. And we're like, okay, so if you could pick out five things that you could do, maybe do the first one and two to protect the kids and maybe let three, four and five go. And she's, that makes sense. Let it roll to this degree or to this. Okay. So you're saying let it go this far, or I think you could also say I can let these balls fall, but not these strategically protect the children to this degree. And then that's it. It's a complicated subject, this kid thing, but should you protect them from knowing that the other's parent, whatever has the problem. And when the other parent, if they say something or do something that hurts their feelings, should you say, daddy loves you. He didn't really mean that. Like, where does that fall in the, you know, that's a massive question. I think, first of all, it depends to a large degree on the ages of the children. I think 10 and up, they can understand that dad has a problem three and four. No, but I don't think you should go against what you just gave. Daddy loves you. And he didn't mean it. I think you should say, I'm sorry, daddy said that, but he did say it. And so I don't think you should minimize that. I think the age of the children is paramount in that decision, though. Because in some ways, and I actually heard somebody else say this. It's another YouTuber that does mental health stuff. And I never thought about it before. But it's if you're constantly told things like that, your mom really loves you, you know this, and but they're treating you badly. It's a form of gaslighting, actually. Well, it's training them also to be in an unhealthy relationship pervasively in life because they didn't. maybe they didn't really mean it. Or to not recognize, right, when something's out of bounds. It's this delicate balance of we don't want to villainize the other parent. We don't want to hurt the relationship any more than it is. But it's hard. It's hard to Mm -hmm. make all these decisions when you're living with or caring about someone who has a functional alcoholism or addiction problem. Is it possible to be a functional addict? Because you hear about functional alcoholism a lot, but you don't hear that term as much. Is that a thing? I think to a degree, yes. To the greatest degree, no. We hear all the time kids are smoking a ton of weed, but they're still going to school. They're still working. But eventually those balls do drop. I think it goes faster with drugs than with alcohol. The younger they are, they're more in line. Like a 14-year-old is drinking a ton of, is going to be just as bad as a 17-year-old Coke user. But the adults, if they started later, that whole pleasure pathway gets stolen slower and slower than the adolescent because of the dopamine thing. And when they're young, they don't even have the skills to manage all those things already. So. Also, I call those safety nets. They don't have a house. They don't have a job. They don't have a car eventually because the parents say you can't drive a car. And if they're mm-hmm. like me, eventually you can't live here. So they really don't lose those safety nets. So that unmanageability becomes faster than for an adult who's in charge of the safety nets. Exactly. Yeah. So the younger the person is when they use, the faster they're going to be non-functional. And therefore, the faster we can leverage them into treatment. Super hard to leverage your husband or your wife into treatment because they are probably co-own the home. 
their names on all the joint bank accounts. You don't have much leverage, which is why I think it's really difficult to be the spouse. But in some ways, I think it's easier to get an adult to see the consequences because kids almost feel impervious or entitled for everything to be fixed or managed for them and stuff like that. So it's hard, I think, to get a kid to see that they need to take the responsibility. Yeah, but I see that same thing happening with some of the adult alcoholics because they just gaslight the spouse or gaslight their boss or gaslight their coworkers and or I didn't pass that exam because the weather was terrible and I was Oh yeah, there's to, always a reason. There's right? always reason. So I think it I don't know, like neither one is good. Neither one is good. Right? <laughs> agreed. Agreed. <laughs> one of the one of the ways that I see functional addict a lot people who are addicted to pain pills, they will not only be functional for several years, they'll be better. They'll make the honor roll. They will get star key employee because it actually makes them function better for the first several years. But eventually it gets to the point that they can't financially keep up with the substance. They can't get enough of it. And then all their energy goes towards obtaining the substance. And so therefore I have to steal and I can't go to school because I have to go out and deal to get my money. Yeah. The finances on the opiate problem, I think is what grabs them at the end. Right. It's the chasing of the substance. Mm -hmm. The substance itself doesn't necessarily make someone non-functional. And I think that Two is why it's easier to miss that as a family member because they don't look intoxicated. They don't smell funny. They don't slur. They don't forget. They don't have the same memory issues no. when they're in the, those first few years of an opiate type addiction. So I feel like they are very functional. They're better. For yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I had someone got into Duke uh, while using a ton of pain pills. Same thing with stimulants. Same kind of thing. So there are certain substances that do make you more functional for a while. And that's another reason too why it's so hard to stop them because your your brain constantly remembers when it worked for you. So and a lot of times why it's really hard to give up one of those kind of substances is because you're trying not to drop the balls. And now it's gotten to the point that you cannot go to work. You cannot go to like you literally can't get out of bed unless you have it. And so you're like trying so hard to stay functional. And that's where it comes into functional addict or alcoholic. Now I need it in yeah. order. To be able to go and do these things. To be able to function, I must be using. But even but then, if you can procure it and get away with your procurement method, you're going to keep going. Oh, yeah. Yeah, as long as you can keep most of the balls in the air, then you're going to, because it, it's worked for you. We, we want to do what works, even if it's difficult, because we're used to it. It's hard to see, honestly, how difficult it is or how bad you feel or how bad the situation is to you. Yeah, that addiction that lives in the survival part of the brain is not going to turn on that flashlight and let you see it. It's, in fact, going to turn the flashlight off so you don't see it. I don't really know if people say this a lot, but I get the impression people think it a lot. It, it's almost like if I'm a functional addict or alcoholic, I'm not really an addict or an alcoholic. I'm really just a heavy drinker yeah. or... It's like they they may even call themselves that or say the word, but there's this sort of dismissiveness that it's not really that problem. But that's, to me, that's human nature, like gaining weight, all those things. Yeah, but my pants still fit. Oh, but I still can wear my Lululemon pants. And then all of a sudden you're like, holy God, I don't even know who I am. But that's the brain rationalizing to get that dopamine. And honestly, what is really happening is you're just, what I would say is you're just, an addict or alcoholic who hasn't lost everything yet, but you're on your way. There is only one end to that because the thing about addiction is it doesn't level off or plateau. Oh no. You're going to be worse. And yep. if you, you're either going to address the issue and stop and get under control, or you're going to 
move into the non-functional. But a lot of people think I'm not, or even they're not that kind of alcoholic as if there's, as if there's these two categories instead of understanding that it really is just stages of one issue and that they're just a stage before the other issue. Yeah. I think that's true of a pervasive amount of, of people in the world is I'm not that bad. Like John, he had, he got a DUI. He's got a problem, but my wife is mad at me and I've missed four days of work so far this month and it's only the ninth, but no one said anything. So it's okay. And honestly, I wouldn't have a a problem with that thought of I'm not that bad because in some ways that's true. Right. But when people say I'm not that bad, the real translation behind that is I don't need to stop completely. When you're trying to say I'm not that kind of addict or alcoholic, all you're really trying to say is I can still figure out how to do this manageably. That's what the translation is, whether it's the family member or the person trying to not see the issue. Because when a lot of the people I see, they most of the people I see fall into the functional category. And I would say, you're right. You're not that bad. You have not gone that far. That's why, to be honest, like, here we are in January, dry January, and there's a billion people who need to go to treatment who are going to successfully, although not prettily, make it through dry January, which means in February, they don't have a problem whatsoever, and we're now on rinse and repeat. Oh, yeah. Or even sometimes I think with the dry Januarys, I went the 30 days and I actually ended up eventually feeling a lot better and feeling more motivated and functioning better. But then February comes and I'm like, pick it right up, like making up for lost time, like literally February 1st or whatever. And then all the chaos comes back. It's just like the reverse of, I was talking to a young client of mine yesterday. He was going to treatment today. And I was like, what's on your agenda today? And he literally looked at me on Zoom and he goes, I'm drinking. I got to stop tomorrow. So it's almost the opposite of that for dry January is I made it through. Therefore I can drink versus I'm drinking because I can't tomorrow. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. So the whole, that's one of the things I wanted to ask, because when you're saying a functional alcoholic is someone who needs to use to function, I think a functional alcoholic can go days without it and they can still function, but it's not very well. I think it's, again, it's a variance on stage three and stage four or end stage three to end stage four. By end stage four, you're not getting out of bed without using. Oh, yeah. I, I had a client who was a heroin. He wasn't really a client. He was a friend of a friend, but and he was a heroin user and he was cutting hair for a really upscale salon in the city that he lived in. And he called me one day and said, Hey, I need some help. Do you, can you call me back later on? I was like, sure. What's going on? He said, I've really got to stop using heroin. I said, why do you say that? Not that one would have to say that, but I was trying to meet him where he was. And he said, because I make about $400 an hour and I am shooting heroin eight times from 9am to five to go out there and cut that hair. And to me, that's when I was like, that's a functioning addict. Yeah. I have to use to function. I think the words can be interchanged because clearly he's not functioning. So I can align with your verbiage. Yeah. I I think it's it's interesting because in some ways you can be a functional addict better than you can be a functional alcoholic because when you drink too much, you're not really able to function very well. So because you're intoxicated, you're like literally impaired. So which is different than some of the substances, right? But you pop a Loratab and you all of a sudden feel better. 
you're going to go out and just be fine for another two or three hours. Right. To me, it's most of the time when you deal with alcoholism, it's like I'm still going to work, but I'm literally stopping at the store on the way home. I'm drinking four in the car on the way home before I get there because I know my wife doesn't like it. And then when I get home, I put the others in the fridge and I'm going to drink those two. And when she gets on my case, I'm going to say, oh my gosh, I had two beers. What is your problem? That's what, that is what I find. And I might do that, but I also might need to go to the grocery store to get dog food. Around oh, 10, yeah. Because I already yeah. done drank the ones in the garage that were my late night sweet place. Yeah. And when that's happening, it's because it's I, I promise myself I'm only gonna drink or use this much. And 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 then when that's going on, it's like the person is purposefully only buying a limited amount with the intention of only drinking so much. A lot of times I see people won't buy only the mini bottles because it's very measured and it's okay, I'm gonna allow myself this many or whatever. But it they don't stick to it. And then it's more dangerous because they end up getting in the car, like you said, and going back to the store. Do you remember that guy so we more. saw years ago when I was still an intern and he was came in and he was like, I'm going to go camping. And you were like, oh, okay, buddy. I would think about the camping because I know you think camp is a trigger, but I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. We're like, okay, great. We talk about it. We see him. We'll see you next week. We don't see this dude for three more weeks. And I'm just the lowly intern on the little black rolling chair. So I don't even say a word. He comes crawling in like a month later and you were like, dude, where have you been? He was like, you remember my camping trip? We're like, yeah. He says, yeah. So I decided I would just take three beers on the trip. And I was just going to get there, set up my tent. I was going to drink the beers. And I was going to be set because I wasn't going to be able to drive anymore because it's a long way down the mountain. It'll be dark. I drank those three beers on the way up the mountain. And then I passed a little store. So I thought, I'll just get three more to drink while I'm there because this is going really well. He gets up there, he sets up the tent, he drinks three beers, and he decides he'll drive back down the mountain to get some more, and he gets a DUI and is in jail and can't come talk to you. I call that the special circumstance. It's in this situation, and a lot of times it's like on vacation or when I'm camping, or sometimes I find that flying on airplanes is a special circumstance because I'm not going to be driving. There's a few things that kind of people tend to bargain with a lot. Oh, beach trips, holidays, vacation, Sunday, Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. This is never ending. If someone is questioning to themselves, am I a functional addict or alcoholic? How would they know? What would be the signs and symptoms that if this is happening, you're probably in the category? I personally think if you're questioning it, you probably are. So there's that. But I think that you have to be able to be analytically truthful with yourself and say, is, are there things that I want to do that I'm not getting done because of this? Are there relationships that I'd like to be fostering or building, but I'm not doing it because of this? I think if you could catch it at that point, you could catch it before it was a problem. Those balls are still be yourself balls. I don't think many people have that skill. And so then it's, did I fall down at that party? Did I get funny looks as we were leaving the party? Did my husband say, you drank too much? Or you have to start adding those things up and say, if there's more than two of those, probably have a problem. Those are some of the early, early signs. And I, it would be awesome if people could catch that. Another one I would add to is that you can't consistently control it. And yeah. I try not to tell people like, I don't say you can't control it because most of the time they can sometimes, but they can't do it consistently and they can't do it predictably. It's, there are weeks or days or whatever where they'll go and they'll set these limits and they'll stay right within the limits. But there will be, the dam will break. And when it breaks, bad crap is going to happen. Yeah. And, so, and then it's like this promise, okay, go back to the plan, go back to the plan. Go back to the plan. And frequently, and you're breaking your promises to yourself more than once. It's happening on a regular. Then you're probably in the category. Absolutely. But 
a good old alcoholic is not going to recognize that. They're going to find a special reason that happened. And that what they're going to label it is binge drinking. I can tell you right now. They're going to say, well, I'm not alcoholic. I'm a binge drinker, which is a phase of the alcoholism. I get like maybe you're in college and you're just binge drinking on purpose. Okay, I'm going to give you that one. Yeah. But when you're find that you're not, that you're binge drinking, but you're not intending to. Or you're binge drinking alone. Everyone else went home or went to bed and you're doing it alone. You're like, okay, everyone else went to bed at midnight and I stayed up till four and drank another bottle of wine. Some of the people I see only drink alone. They like literally don't drink socially. And the reason is because they know they're going to over drink and they don't want other people to see them in that state. And they know if they do drink, it's going to go to that point. So they literally do not drink socially. Yeah. And then everyone's surprised. I also think a lot of people who drink alone get stuff done. It's almost to the opiate thing. I'll stay up and have a glass of wine, but I'll get all the ironing done. Or I'll mop the kitchen floor while I have another glass of wine. Or I'll work on the Christmas list or whatever. And so it's a that's really slows it down because... Yes, I drank too much, but look at what I got done. Is the but I was so functional. Right. right. Well, I was not active. only functional, I mean, because I oh, got yeah. all that stuff done. My husband was upstairs sleeping. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My guys that drink, they like, their yards look fabulous <laughs> because they love to work in the yard. Because it's like a whole day of like free pass. <laughs> and not only do you get the free pass, but like you get like the points. You get, you get credit. Yeah, you get the credit, the neighbor credit, the wife credit. Yeah. yeah. So some of those functional things, if when we have something very functional attached to addictive use, it, it becomes more difficult to see what you're saying, but it also becomes more difficult to quit. Yeah, the productivity <laughs> puts blinders on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot of times in the summer, I say, you're going to have to pay someone to mow your yard this summer. <laughs> you're going to have to get a pool boy this summer. We'll, we'll talk about it again next time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we've it's had, such a we've had do you have to hop off? Do you have a client right now, Kimball? I do. You do? Oh, I do. Darn. Man, that was a fast 30 minutes. It was fast. All right. I don't want to make you late. I'll let you go. I'll stay on and I'll answer a couple of these little questions here. Gosh, thanks for having me. That was fun. All right. If you'd like to get additional advice, support, coaching on your specific situation, consider becoming a member. When you become a member, you actually become a family member. Every single week, our family recovery specialist, Kim and Campbell, come on. They do live group coaching calls so you can ask uh, questions about your situation, get advice, get feedback, find out what to do next. And those live group coaching calls are exclusive members only. You also get the support of the community and you get advanced skills training. I'll put the link in the description so you can become a family member today. Alrighty here. Let's see if we've got some questions. Here we go. Nalisha says, my ex's family is in deep denial about my addict or alcoholic husband's addiction. Despite all of the messages and abuse, he's likely to stay stuck if the family system can't see it, despite two DUIs, loss of job, legal issues. Yes, and this is a very common issue when you're dealing with someone who's in this functional category, because as the spouse, the person that lives with them, you see it and other people don't. What they see is this person's functioning. And so not only do they see this person's functioning, but then they see you being mad at this person. And that leads the family to think she's the problem. 
And then they think if they're drinking too much, it's like she's driving them to it. And it is so maddening as the the spouse to be in that situation because the addicted person will split them against you. They'll go over there and talk. She's just never happy. She's always criticizing me. And then that gets the other family members to validate even more and all that kind of stuff. Big Phone Nation says, how can we know if someone you love has a drinking problem? I would say, does the drinking cause them problems? If the drinking is causing them problems and they're still doing it and it's causing more and more problems, then they have a drinking problem. It's probably like a simple way, but it's a pretty, if you want to look at it and figure it out and say if it's in this category or not, that would be the thing. It's not how much or how often it's, does it cause problems? I'm so tired of my addicted husband's anger. Does anger management not work if someone is in active addiction? Yes, that is correct. There is no active, there's no anger management that's going to work when someone's pouring chemicals on their brain and making their brain chemistry go up and down and they're taking their filter off. Like anger management requires self-reflection. It requires you to use skills. It requires you to use self-discipline and resist urges. And when you're intoxicated and you're using substances, your urges and impulses, the volume on that is turned way up and your ability, your frontal lobe ability to resist those impulses turn right down. So no anger management will not work if someone's in active addiction. I like it when I can give a clear answer because some, some of these questions are so gray. Kate B said, my boyfriend relapsed to weed then alcohol and I'm in the bag I roll again. Do I need to repair that or just back away now while he works on his sobriety? You can do either. Backing away needs to be for you though. So if you're thinking, do I need to back away for him? Like somehow would it make him better? Is it what he needs? It's probably not necessarily what he needs, but it might be what you need. So you need to answer the the questions separately. Backing away should be something you're doing for you because there's a lot of because there's a lot of reasons why that could be. I'm sure you know what they are. Do you need to repair that? It depends. If you're deciding that you don't want to back away, that you do want to stay in an active relationship with this person and you're trying to help them get out of this addiction, then you need to repair the bag I roll. So I'm not telling you should do that. I'm just telling you if that's what you're wanting to do, that's the step in the right direction. Dr. Howard says, I joined the membership because I need help. Feel foolish as a psychologist to have lived this. Hey, um, welcome. I'm glad you're in our membership. Uh, are you trying out our five-day um, No More Mr. Vaga Challenge? Because that um, that's really going well. I really like it. We're having a lot of good results with it. And don't feel foolish going through this, being a person in the field, because I can tell you tomorrow, this could happen to me. This could happen to my son. This can happen to anyone. And I promise you, even knowing everything I know, I will fall into the traps of doing the wrong things some of the time. So it doesn't make you immune. Being in this field doesn't make you immune. You shouldn't feel bad about it. What you should feel is at least glad that you're in the field and you know how to find resources and you probably have more skills and you probably do have, you're going to get the answers faster because you already know about half of them, at least half of them. <laughs> And then you say, your ex always drinks alone. Fin friends and family don't believe you. It's so hard. I know, right? And they'll literally go to like their coworkers or the people and be like, can you believe my wife thinks I'm an alcoholic? And they'll literally tell your loved one, oh my gosh, she's crazy. You don't drink near as much as me. I've never even seen you drunk because they don't have the front row seat. Isn't it maddening? I can tell you one piece of advice here, and you probably already know this, but some other people might not know this. 
do not try to go to those people and convince them that your husband is an alcoholic. That will enrage your spouse more than anything else you could do. They're going to see that as completely disloyal. It's one of those things that sometimes they just won't even forgive even after they get sober. And then also it doesn't ever work because the storyline that your spouse is telling them is that you're critical, that you're an overreactor, that you're this. And so when you do that, it almost validates that person's story that they've set up. So whatever you do, I know it is frustrating, but don't try to go tell them. The only way those other people are going to see it is to see it. Like they're going to have to see it themselves. Ivan and Lydia says, how do I know when it's appropriate to talk to your loved one about the addiction when they are functioning, but also under the influence? Will anything we say resonate? Most people would say, no, you cannot talk to someone under the influence. And in general, if I had to give you a black and white answer, that's what I would tell you. If it's alcohol and they're under the influence, even more probably not because a lot of times they won't even remember it. If it's stimulant or a pain pill or something like that doesn't necessarily mess with their memory, sometimes it can be okay to do that, but you're going to be talking to someone who's not running on all cylinders. So the best time is to try to catch them when they're at their most sober, which a lot of times is either like in the morning or in the early part of the day for a lot of people. So sometimes you can't catch them sober because they're never all the way sober, but get them at their soberest if you're going to do that. And then that's the time. But then how you have that conversation is difficult. We got a lot of videos on here about how to do it. So make sure you watch those before you do it because you don't want to go in the front door on this. You want to go in the side door on this. Jesse has an urgent question here. My question, is it possible to use the craft method on an ex-girlfriend that doesn't live with or communicate me anymore? She's currently living with her BF who is giving her meth. No, it is not possible to use the craft method. You, The craft method is all about positive reinforcement and relationship building. And so you have to, it's, it works best if they live with you. They don't have to live with you, but you have to have like regular talk and communication, like multiple times a week, I would say for this to work, or I guess be their counselor, <laughs> but you got to have a regular relationship. Um, if this person is in a relationship with someone else, they're not talking to you. They're in a relationship with someone else who's giving them the drug. It, it's not going to work. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you do have communication with them or you do interact with them, it's still a good way to inter interact with someone. It's a good way to interact with anyone really, because it's going to be you doing what's right, but I wouldn't expect for it to be effective if you're that, if there's that much distance as far as getting them to make a change. Let's see here. Question. What if they believe drinking is better than pills and they can handle it? Believing bathing is a chore and rarely does it. Is this beyond help that I can give? Do we need a real intervention? This is a good question. This is what I would call a bargaining phase. So it's if somebody's addicted to like multiple things and they maybe one thing is causing more unmanageability faster, which a lot of times like harder drugs will cause the problems happen faster. So the person says, oh, it's this thing that's the problem. And so they quit like the pills or the hard drug or whatever it is. But they think drinking's not really been a problem for me. That's not going to work because what's happened is they've learned to use the pills to not cope with life. And if they're just immediately going to put the alcohol in, they're going to use the alcohol to not cope with life. They're not even given a chance to develop coping skills or anything else. So that's definitely not going to work. And what you're saying is if it's to the point that they're not bathing, then my guess is it's to the point that they're probably falling into this non-functional category. 
And the further into the non-functional category they get, the, the closer I think you should move towards doing like an old school type of intervention. When they're more in the functional category, I think an old school intervention is counterproductive. I think you should do like the invisible intervention, the craft method, something like that. So I hope that helps. Bianca says, my husband is a highly functioning alcoholic cocaine user. He's highly respected at the workplace, but totally different at home, has been this way since he is 15 years old. We've been together 14 years, four kids, and he's been this way our whole relationship. He tried to stop so many times and says he can do it himself, but of course he's had no success. How can I help? Whenever they say, I can do it myself, one of the things I like to set up is I say, okay, let's try that. But if that doesn't work, will you agree to at least talk to a counselor or get an assessment or, or, or get do an IOP? So get their agreement up front. That doesn't guarantee that they're going to follow through with doing that, but you're setting an expectation. Yes, I'm, I believe in you. I believe you can do this yourself. I'm going to give you this opportunity. But hey, if we're proven that's not working can we do something else? And a lot of times they'll say yes. And a lot of times it, too, it forces them to say, okay, she let me try it my way multiple times and it didn't work and it's not working. Maybe I should do something else. Let's see here. Tara says, my husband is telling me that he's slowing down and he's on his way to not using, but I can tell he's still using. Is this change talk or just placating? This is definitely change talk, especially because he's saying he's slowing down and he's on his way to not using. Now, this may not work. What he's probably trying to do is like taper himself. But this is not only change talk, but this is like some insight here, Tara, because he's saying and on my way to not using, which tells me that he knows that he really needs to be not using, which is actually a good sign. So I would say that this is change talk. Let's see here. JNM says, I have been doing the craft method with my husband since July. It's been going good, but I hit a breaking point a couple of days ago and wrote a letter to him, giving him a glimpse of our marriage and my hurts from my, what does that stand for? I don't even know. Did this just below everything out of the water. I have been staying out of the bad guy role and I feel like my letter was rude or mean just explaining where I'm at. This is a hard, this is it's not a hard question to answer. As far as, is it going to be helpful to the person, your spouse, your person with the addiction? It could be only if you have built up a lot of credibility. I, I don't know how long you've been watching Jane, but I'll talk about the building credibility. It's, it's almost like building up a credit rating or something to cash in. So if you've been out of the bad guy role, consistently they've seen you differently and then you break and you lose it and you say something like that then sometimes they're like wow I really overstepped like that I shouldn't have done that because they see that their behavior was out of line if you've been mostly consistently in the bag of roll and then you just write another letter they're not going to get any insight from it but I don't want to say like you messed up or you did the wrong thing because hey your needs matter too I'm just saying as far as like getting through to them when it's effective and when it's not Lauren says my birthday is next week, and I would like to celebrate with a glass of wine on my birthday. Is that okay? Lauren, are you in recovery, or are you saying maybe someone you care about is in recovery? Like maybe your spouse or something like that, they're in recovery, and you're like, can I have a glass of wine on my birthday? And if so, if that's the case, then I would say, how long has the person been in recovery? If it's you're saying, like maybe your partner's in recovery, but it's your birthday, can you have a glass of wine? If they've been in recovery for a good while, then... I would just ask them and say, hey, is it going to bother you? And they're probably going to say no. If they're newly in recovery, 
I probably wouldn't even ask them because they're probably going to say no because they don't want to deprive you of that, but it, it might be bothersome. It will definitely be bothersome if you drink a lot, like you come home intoxicated or something like that. It, it might be okay, though, that if let's say you go, you hang out with your friends, your girls or whatever, you have a few drinks and come back, but it, it's tenuous. In the beginning, I say... I would say to not do it just to be supportive of them, even if they say it's not going to bother me. I'm not saying that forever, just for the first little while. All right, everybody. It looks like we are running out of time. Thank you. Thank you. There are additional resources in the description. If you want to make an appointment with Campbell to talk about your situation, that link is down there. If you want to get in our members program, the link for that is down there. And I will see you guys next week. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to our audio, but did you know these episodes are recorded live on YouTube? Join us Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern to participate in the discussion, ask questions, give and get feedback. Any featured links discussed in this episode can be found in the show notes. And lastly, my goal is to spread recovery faster than addiction is spreading, and I can't do it alone. You can help support my mission by leaving a review for this podcast or sharing it with a friend.